this second week of our Apocalypse series, uh, I want to talk to you about the this is that principle. Now, I've, I've, I've told you about this before. Uh, I'll probably tell you about it again. But the this is that principle is when something on the surface is pointing to a greater reality. Uh, so this is actually that. Okay, let me give you some examples. Uh, when the Major League Baseball added another wild card... Uh, it was so that there is yet another playoff game. It really wasn't about boosting morale for the game. Uh, it wasn't about giving another 550-50 team a shot at the playoffs. It was really about extending the playoff season and gaining more revenue, right? Uh, it was the bottom line. It was like this is actually that. Got it? Some of you are not baseball fans. I can tell, okay? So um, <laughs> I will not ask for an amen if you're a baseball fan for fear that it, there may be silence. Okay. Okay. So uh, when your kid comes up to you and begging you to draw a picture with them and, and, and you're like, no, man, you know, I'm busy. I'm doing a project. And they ask you and over, over and over and over, please, can we draw a picture? Please, can we draw a picture? No, I'm busy. I'm working on a project. I got something going on. You know, I got something going on way more important than a picture. What, what your child is not doing, they're not begging you to draw a picture. They're begging you for your undivided attention. This is actually that. Now, Apple and Samsung are in a giant legal battle right now. You guys know this. And uh, over who is stealing whose ideas. And it's, it's all just very dramatic, okay? Uh, and uh, it really isn't, this legal battle really isn't about the ideas themselves. It's really about the battle over perceived innovation because the company that is perceived as having the greatest innovation will ultimately have the greatest market value, right? So uh, right now, Apple is perceived to be the greatest innovators in the world. Now, you guys know that I'm an Apple fan, so what I'm about to say might surprise you, but it it took the iPhone uh, about three years uh, before copy and paste came out. Uh, It was the third version of the iPhone software before you could copy and paste. Now, some of you just got your iPhones, and copy and paste is just second nature, and you didn't know anything about this. But if you've had an iPhone since almost the beginning like I have, you will realize that there was a season in the life of this phone where you couldn't do something as simple and copy and paste. And so when iPhone 3.0 came out, and it was was like the iPhone 3GS, and, and iPhone people were like, it's awesome! We can copy and paste on our phones! Isn't this amazing? And... And Android users were like, we've had that for a long time. Okay? And then so most recently, uh, there's this new function on the, on the brand new phone and, and the new software that came out where if someone calls you and you're in a position where you can't answer the phone, uh, you can actually just flip up on your home screen and you can actually reply with a text automatically to the person that's calling you. And it could say something like, hey, can't answer the phone right now, but I'll call you later. Or you could set a reminder. And so you, you just say, hey, remind me to call that person that's calling me right now. Remind me to call them in an hour. And, and so, you know, iPhone users, when it first came out, we were like, oh, this is awesome. I can reply with a text automatically. And Android users were like, we've had that for a long time, right? But Apple is perceived as coming up with all of these great ideas, and so they have the greatest market share. So the, the legal battle is not so much about who's stealing whose ideas, but it's really about perceived innovation, because innovation 
leads to greater market share. And so if Samsung could just churn the corner and be perceived as innovators, then they might just gain more and more market share, but not if it's up to me. Okay. Just in case you thought I was like hating on Apple and all this stuff. All right. So uh, Jesus really liked the this is that principle. I want to nail this home, okay? I want to nail this home. Jesus really liked the this is that principle. He told the story about a dad who had two sons. And one son was tired of home. He was bored. He wanted more adventure in his life. And so he went to his dad and he said, Dad, I wish you were dead. And I want my inheritance right now. I want it right now. Even though you're not dead, I wish you were. And so I want my inheritance. And dad gave it to him. That perhaps is the oddest part of the story. Uh, And so the son goes away. He, He goes on his big adventure. He lives it up for a while. I mean, anything that money could buy was right at his fingertips. All the world had to offer was right there for him. He had everything that he could ever want except for a great relationship with his father. But wealth is fleeting, and soon it ran out. And he, he went from wearing royal robes and, and fancy living to, to living with pigs and eating pig slop. And in those dark moments, he missed the father he once despised. And so he practiced a speech for his dad. And it went something like this. Dad, I'm so sorry. I did it wrong. Oh, will you please welcome me back? And he practiced this speech. And, and then he went to the one whom he took his inheritance from, hoping that his dad would just at least have the, 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 the grace in his heart to welcome him home. And he makes his way home, the long journey back home, and his dad has been looking for him every single day, hoping that his son would come home. He wasn't angry. He was hoping that his son would come home. And when his father saw him off in the distance, the dad, a man of of honor and respect and and, and weight and importance, ran to his son. This is something that a, a father would have never done in this culture. The father would have never run to his son, but he loses his dignity, runs to his son to welcome him home, and when the son starts into his speech, the dad says, hold on, let me cut you off. I've got, I've got a party ready for you. Let's kill the fattened calf. Let's put a ring on your finger. And so they had a party for the son who was once lost but has now come home. And Jesus told this story as a way of saying this is really about that. This story is not actually about a dad and two sons. This story is actually about the deep love that God has for you, that despite the times when you may reject him and run away and and, and choose to ignore him, the father is there ready to welcome you home and throw a party when you come home. It was a way of saying this is really about that. It doesn't matter how many steps you take away from God. It's only ever one step back to God. Jesus loved the this is that principle. But this is all like modern day and this is all, you know, warm, fuzzy, New Testament kind of stuff. But this is that uh, was also in the Old Testament. And that's where it got just a little weird. For example, in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 11, the prophet Ahijah, just, you know, those of you that are expecting, if you need some baby names, just trying to help you out, prophet Ahijah tears his new garment into 12 pieces and he gives 10 pieces to Jeroboam and it is a way of sort of living out and symbolizing this reality that Israel would soon be divided and that 10 of those 12 tribes of Israel would be given over to the rule of Jeroboam. And so in order to to communicate this message, the Old Testament prophet Ahijah takes his new robe, 
literally tears it in 12 pieces, then gives 10 of the pieces to Jeroboam. It was a, this is actually about that. This little thing that I'm doing with my clothes is actually about Israel's about to be divided and you're going to be heading over, heading up 10 tribes. Then the prophet Hosea was called to marry a prostitute who after their marriage still proved to be unfaithful and uh, went sleeping around, and God called the prophet to do this in order to demonstrate that Israel was an unfaithful bride to God. And so the prophet Hosea is actually living out the very metaphor or symbol of Israel, that Israel is an unfaithful bride to God, and so God calls him to marry an unfaithful woman. This is actually about that. Are you with me? One more. Isaiah 20. Isaiah walks around naked for three years. Do you know that? And you said the Bible was boring. The dude walks around naked for three years. Awesome. Okay. And it was meant to symbolize that Egypt and Ethiopia will be carried off naked and barefoot as prisoners of Assyria. This is actually, thank goodness, that, okay? This is that principle. Now today, I want to talk to you about a this is that in Ezekiel 4. Now let me tell you how our our series, Apocalypse, is is, uh, structured. We're going to be in this series through the rest of the year. So are we going to do warm, fuzzy Christmas messages? Yes, but from the book of Revelation. (laughs) Yes, I love it, okay? So we're going to be in this through the rest of the year, and, and we're doing... We're doing four weeks in Ezekiel, three weeks in Daniel, and then four weeks in Revelation. It's going to be amazing. Okay, so Ezekiel chapter 4. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at some really weird stuff and like a heavenly vision and creatures and wheels and fire and stuff like that. If you missed it, you can listen to it on the podcast. Today I want to be in Ezekiel chapter 4, and I'm going to read the entire chapter to you. And I want you to keep in mind the this is that principle. Are you with me? Okay, here it is, Ezekiel chapter 4. Now, son of man, that is God speaking to Ezekiel, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it, and then lay siege to it. That piece of clay never saw it coming. Erect siege works against it and build a ramp up to it and then set camps against it and put, a battery, and put battering rams around it and then take an iron pan and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face toward it. Turn your face toward it. This phrase is a way of saying that Ezekiel is actually in the position of the siege-er. That's not a word, I just made it up. But the one doing the sieging. Okay? Clear as mud. You can make up words when you have a microphone. Okay. So, turn your face toward it. And it will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. And this will be a sign to the house of Israel. This is that. This will be a sign. Now, this is where it gets even more awesome. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. For you are to bear their sin for the number of days that you lie on your side. And I have assigned 
you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. And after you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Then turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem and with a bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Now take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, and put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days that you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out a sixth of a hen of water. That doesn't sound like very much. A sixth of a hen. Hey man, you want a hen of water? No thanks. Okay, and then so eat the food as you would a, a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. Thought for sure I'd hear an amen. Then the Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will be defiled among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, not so, sovereign Lord, which is exactly what I would say. I have never defiled myself from my youth until now. I've never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No impure meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, the Lord said, I will let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of using human excrement. And then someone said, thank you, Jesus. Okay. Isn't this good? <laughs> Somebody's like, I am not coming back for the rest of this series. If it gets any weirder than this. Okay. And then he said to me, son of man, I'm about to cut off the food supply in Jerusalem. And the people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair. For food and water will be scarce. And they will be appalled at the sight of each other. And will waste away because of their sin. This is that. And this will be a sign for Israel. Now, Israel has been disobedient to God in their history. Ezekiel is, is, is prophesying or speaking to a nation, uh, a nation that God has set aside to accomplish his, his, per, accomplish his purposes, not just in, among those people, but ultimately through the whole world, through the, through the line and the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But, but, Jesus, but God started this whole plan by, by calling out a specific people, making a covenant with them, and, and raising certain standards. And part of this covenant was that there would be certain standards of living for them. And Israel has been very disobedient against God, and, and God has promised that I'm now going to bring judgment. And we learned last week that judgment is sort of this idea of I'm going to have to sort all of this out. Uh, so, so God is, is on a mission to sort this out. His heart is broken because they made promises. They're not living up to them. They have screwed up. And so God says a siege is coming. And a siege as in Jerusalem will be attacked and taken over. And what he does is he tells Ezekiel, to act out this siege by drawing the city of Jerusalem on a piece of clay and then setting his face against it or, or toward that city and, and then to put all the pieces of your Legos together. Like, all the details have to be there. And he says, so he says, build ramps to get to the city. Uh, build camps because you've got to travel 
from where you're from to the city that you're about ready to take over, and you've got to camp outside the city, and, and, and then uh, take and, and, and build some, some battering rams. And if you don't know what a battering ram is, let me just say this. Think of uh, the Lord of the Rings and the battle at Helm's Deep, where the, the orakai are... are <laughs> ramming those doors, right? With a, with a huge, like, stick, log, lumber. Perfect idea of what a battering ram is, right? There, all of you have it, okay? So, that, so that's what it is. So, so Ezekiel is, is acting all of this out, and, it, and, and it's because of a disobedient Israel. Now, if you're anything like me, um, you're wondering, what did Israel do to deserve the siege? Like, God is love, you know, how he loves us. And and we love to sing about all this stuff. And so so immediately you're wondering, like, what what kind of of disobedience happened that that God would call Ezekiel to, to, to physically act out a siege Against Jerusalem. Well, well here's just a, a sampling of some of the disobediences of Israel. In, in the book of Exodus, uh, we, we find that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, are enslaved um, by Egypt. And, they, and they've been enslaved for hundreds of years. And then God miraculously frees them from their bondage uh, by bringing plagues upon Egypt in order to show his power, in order to show his glory. And, and then as they escape and, 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 you know, like, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh says no, and his heart is hardened. And they go through all these plagues. And, and then finally, Pharaoh says, I've had enough. Go ahead, you're free, and leave. And so all of Israel leaves. And, and, and then they're, they're going, and they're headed to the promised land. You know, it's like, God is good. He's freed us. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're headed to the promised land. And, and, but, but Pharaoh changes his mind. And so Pharaoh sends all these armies uh, after the nation of Israel and they find themselves between a rock and a hard place. I mean, Israel finds themselves in a sandwich between uh, the Red Sea and and all the armies of Pharaoh in Egypt. And and so they're like, what is going to happen now? And and then that's where we have the miracle of how God splits the Red Sea and Israel literally walks across the the sea, which would have taken days, it's not something like, it's not like a 10 minute walk. It would have taken days to get all the way across. And, and then God brings the, the waters back onto the, the uh, armies of Egypt and miraculously frees them. Awesome. But then they disobey God. They're on their way to the promised land. But before they were even there, they became disobedient. And God says, because of your disobedience, I'm going to rob you of the promised land and you will just have to wander in the desert for 40 years before you get there. And then while in the desert, after God had done all this 
all these miracles for them, after God had shown himself to be so real, so tangible in their lives, and yet their, their disobedience is they, they get to complaining while they're in the desert. And, and the, the sort of essence of their, of their complaints is that slavery was actually better than what we're doing here. Right here, we don't have any food. We've got to depend on, on God for our food, and God sends manna. And then they're like, oh, man, thank God for this miraculous manna, but... Can you put something else on the buffet, God? And, and, and God provides for them in all these ways, but they long for slavery. They long for the days where they had three square meals and a structured schedule, right? And, and so in, their, in the midst of their freedom, they long for slavery. They've been a disobedient people. And then when Moses was on the mountain receiving God's law, and, and, and when they were... When God was making his covenant with them, when, he, when God was binding himself to this people, uh, Moses, you know, was, was up there a little while. It, it took a little while for, for Moses to do his thing up there and for, for God and Moses to, you know, to, to dance with the Ten Commandments. I'm just coming up with stuff, all right? But you get, you get the point. They were, he was up there a little while. And then the people at the bottom of the mountain, they start getting impatient. And so in their impatience, while God is in the process of binding himself to them in covenant agreement, they make a golden calf and worship it. They move to a more immediate God. They move to a more instant gratification kind of God. And so they take all their golden jewelry, they, they, they melt it down, and then they fashion it into the shape of a calf, and they worship it in the very midst of of God making an everlasting covenant with them so that he would be their God and they would be their, his people. And that's disobedience. They're right in the middle of a miracle. They're disobedient. And then Joshua, who was a great leader, who ultimately led Israel into the promised land. And, and it was, under Joshua's leadership, it was a time of blessing and anointing for the nation of Israel. But a generation after Joshua, the Bible says in Judges that, they had, that the whole nation had forgotten about God. And they had moved to worshiping false gods. That after a season of blessing, they totally forgot about God. And, and you, know, you know what? You and I might, might read the Old Testament. We might read this story of, of a nation whose obedience was so wishy-washy. It was on again, off again. And, and we might say, how could they do such foolish things? I mean, how could they be so disobedient? And, and, and you know what? We might say, they deserve the siege against them. But I want to help us be a little more sensitive than that. And I want to ask the question, are we all that different? I mean, are, are, are you and I all that different from the, from the wishy-washy, on-again, off-again obedience of Israel? Because, I mean, we're, we're, we're slaves to sin, hopelessly lost in its grip, until, until God in Christ and through faith in Christ, he rescues us through his son, and, and, and he frees us from addiction. And that thing that you always struggled with, that slavery that, that was so real in your life, God sets you free from that in Christ. And you come to church, and you praise him, and you sing loud, and you join in songs of proclamation. But how many times are there seasons in your life where in the midst of the freedom that you've experienced, 
experience from God in Christ and through Christ, this amazing freedom, yet so many times, how many times do you wonder what is it like to live again in slavery? Because that's familiar. I know what that's like. And so sometimes in the midst of your freedom in Christ, you long for that thing that enslaved you. And you look to that thing to do things that it can't do. But God can, and yet we, we bask in the freedom of Christ. But sometimes we like to just come over here again and, and, and say, slavery was better because I had three square meals and a structured schedule. It's that familiarity that draws us in. Man, under the freedom of Christ, there, may be, there might be some uncertainties. I don't know what God is going to do in my life. I don't, I don't want to give him the full... Um, the full permission to work in my heart and in my life. And what if he calls me to Africa? You know? And we have all these sort of doubts and these uncertainties of what freedom in Christ will look like. And so we move back to the slavery. Are we all that different? And so, oftentimes, while God is working in our lives, right? You might be going through a difficult time right now. And, and God is working, and God is orchestrating, and God is aligning, and he's, he's moving, he's doing all sorts of work. And, and yet, because you don't see all the evidence of his work, because it's not right in your face, because it's not immediately available, sometimes because it's not so tangible that you can reach out and touch it and say, oh, this is God, this is God working in my life, when we're not able to do that, sometimes, how many times do we turn to a more immediate God? And we say, okay, God, I've given you your time. You haven't done this. I can't see you working. I don't see that it's tangible, so now I'm going over here. And we trade in the faithfulness of the everlasting God for the immediacy of a false God. Are we really all that different than an up again, off again, but disobedient Israel? And perhaps you have written God off during a difficult season, and maybe even a season that come, came after great blessing, just like Israel experienced great blessing under the leadership of Joshua. But maybe after a season of, of blessing, there's a season of difficulty, and in that difficulty, you write God off. Maybe that difficulty was a loved one died, or a tragedy happened in your life or someone else's life that you just can't explain, or maybe you experienced a difficult time personally, and you forget about God after experiencing his love and his goodness and his blessing. We aren't all that different than Israel. Now are we? Where we once would point a finger of shame, how could you? Oftentimes we find that that finger makes its way and points right back at our own lives. And how many times have we asked ourselves that question? How could I? After the goodness and the faithfulness and the grace of God, how could I? You see, the truth that I want us to be aware of is that God calls us to a particular standard of living. And I fall short. And you fall short. And that if we were judged on our performance or our actions or our faithfulness or our obedience, the truth is that you and I would be deserve, deserving of the siege. 
Because there tends to be a gap between the person that I want to be and the person that God has called me to be. Like, I, I want to pray more, and I want to have a, 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 a deep connection with God, but instead I just drag myself out of bed in the morning, and I rush around the house to get breakfast for the kids, and I hit the door running to my first appointment of the day. Can you identify with that? There's a gap sometimes between the, the, the people that we want to be for God and the people that we really are. You see, you want to do great things for God, but, but right now you're just trying to get by with all your responsibilities, the, the weight of keeping a home running, the weight of, uh, of the drama going on with your friends, or, or the weight of, of work and your career has got you so weighed down that, that you, you want to do great things for God, and, and yet you, you find that you're just trying to stay above water. There's a gap between who you want to be and who you are. You want to be a great husband and have time for meaningful talks with your wife and invest in her and love her and plan creative dates like you used to. But after you come home from work, it's all you can do just to get the kids to bed before we are just ready to crash. There's a gap between who we want to be and who we are. And the siege in Ezekiel chapter 4 is a this is actually that. The siege against Jerusalem was speaking to their disobedience. And I think we could say the same thing, that if we're all just really honest, the siege is against us. Now, then Ezekiel is given very uh, specific instructions for a diet. And he is given measurements of, of the food that he is to eat. He's told to eat and drink at set times. And then he is told to eat food by cooking it using poop as fuel. Now, you guys have heard of the Daniel fast. And it's, uh, it's based on the, the prophet Daniel, the biblical prophet Daniel. And uh, where you are just, for a period of time, you only eat fruits and veggies. And there's no bread and no sweeteners. And you drink only water. And it's all very good. And it's supposed to be this soul-enriching thing and this good thing for your body and kind of a cleanse. And so um, I felt like the Lord wanted to, to introduce to you uh, today the Ezekiel diet. And we have cookbooks in the back. And uh, we have programs. It's, uh, it's only 390 days long. Well, actually, you've got to add another 40 days. Uh, so it's actually only 430 days long. So it's very easy to do. Um, it's just wonderful. Come on. I worked really hard on that joke. Okay? I, I knew that after a while it'd be a little heavy, you know, where the siege is on us. And Daniel fast and Ezekiel diet. All right. This is that. You guys got to help me out. I, mean, I work hard, you know. This is that. The food restrictions are a way of saying that a famine is coming. A famine is coming as a result of Israel's sin and as a result of the siege. That after the city is plundered, there will be a, uh, there will be a short supply of both food and water. And so, in order, so, so God calls the prophet Ezekiel, I want you to live this message out. I, I want you to take on sort of this prophetic 
theater that you become the message, not just your words, but actually live this out. Just lay on your side, take on the sin of Israel. Here's the diet that you're supposed to eat. You've got to be uh, under this very strict diet, eating unclean food that's cooked with poop because the reality is, is that Israel's going through a difficult time as a result of their sin and as a result of the siege that's coming against them. And so what happens is, is as Israel lives this message, and as we begin to take this on, uh, we, we begin to understand the nature of sin and disobedience. Ezekiel is trying to teach Israel, and God, through his prophet, is trying to teach us today about the nature of sin and disobedience. And that is this, no sin is victimless. No sin is victimless. The, the, all the sin of Israel was placed on the prophet Ezekiel. He was told to lay on his side, bound up, that there's always a victim to your sin. It might be a secret sin. It might be an open public sin. You might say, oh, it's just me kind of doing my own thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't hurt anybody, the classic line. But I want to tell you, and the scriptural truth and the word of God, and somebody needs to hear today that no sin is victim. There is always a consequence to your sin and disobedience. Sometimes that consequence is immediate. Sometimes it's delayed. But let me tell you that sin is always working its power of isolation. Sin is always working its power of isolation. Ultimately, sin is going to isolate you from the people that you love because it's not victimless. Ultimately, sin is going to isolate you from God because God is holy. And, and, and without Christ, he cannot stand our sinfulness. And, and ultimately, sin will isolate you from yourself. And you will look around in your sin cycle and you will say, how in the world did I get here? And all of a sudden you have forgotten who you were and that the gap between who God has called you to be and who you want to be and who you actually are is so large that you say, God, the sin itself has isolated me from myself. And so the first object of, of this, this, this is that lesson is that we, we have to learn that sin is never without a victim. And the second thing is that sin corrodes the soul. And by the soul, I don't mean the disembodied part of you. I mean the deepest part of you. That sin corrodes the deepest part of who you are. Remember the the last line of this chapter. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Let me tell you, when we, when we act in ways that are sinful, there's this corroding of our soul. There's this wasting away of who we are and who God has made you to be. And then sin leads to death. There's this sense in which and I know I kind of poked fun at it, but, but this whole idea of eating food that is unclean because of how it's cooked, is this, it, it communicates this, this desperate nature that in the midst of the, the fast and the famine that Israel is experiencing, they will eat anything just to be alive, just to stay alive, just to keep going. And I wonder how many of you figuratively or or, or spiritually speaking are are so 
dry and famished and wasting away that you'll latch on to anything just to feel alive. People in immense pain, and the reason that, that cutting is such a reality in our culture is they, people will say, the pain is so great that if I just cut, it reminds me that I'm real. It reminds me that pain is real, where, where the rest of my life is so numb. And, and that's, in essence, a, a, a way of saying that this, there's this corrosion of the soul, this loss of who we are. And the, the opposite, of course, of that is that God wants to build us up. God wants to fill us up. Where our, where our souls, the deepest part of us, might be famished and wasting away, willing to latch on to anything just to stay alive, God wants to fill us up. God wants to lift us up so that we aren't famished but well-fed. And then Ezekiel is called to lie on his side and, and take on the sin of Israel. It's a, it's a difficult, to, to put it lightly, difficult. It's a difficult task for the prophet to take on. He's bound up. He, he's lied down for 390 days, 420, 40 more days for 430 days. And, and then Ezekiel is, is really literally called to be the suffering servant for Israel, to suffer on behalf of the nation of Israel and their sin, and to take on their sin and to bear the punishment. Now, you might be wondering what happened with the siege. The, the Israel is, is, or Ezekiel is called to, to live this thing out with clay and lying on the side and all of this. I mean, what happened? On well, Ezekiel 24, Jerusalem is sieged upon. And in that siege, Ezekiel's wife or as the Bible calls her, the delight of his eyes, dies in the siege. And God calls him, do not mourn and do not weep. And so once again, he's called upon to live the message. This will be a sign to Israel, God says again, that your lack of mourning, your lack of weeping for your wife who has passed away will be a sign to Israel, this is that, that even the most precious things will be taken from this nation that is disobedient. And so the siege did happen with dire consequences. You ready for some good news? While Ezekiel was the suffering servant for Israel... Which I feel like it's important to point out, by the way, that we don't know if um, this is just sort of metaphoric, like God called Ezekiel to do this as, as a message or as a sign, or if he actually did it. But that's not the point. And that's not important. The message is the same. And so while Ezekiel was, was called to be the suffering servant for the nation of Israel to take their sin upon him. He was the foreshadowing of the real suffering servant in Jesus Christ. The one who would not only take on the sin of Israel, but, but take on all the sin of the world upon himself. The one who was truly in a position to do that. The one who was fully God, the Son of God, but at the same time, 
fully human and and able to, to stand perfectly in the gap between God and a broken humanity and a sinful humanity because we aren't all that different than Israel. We have the same tendencies toward up and down faith and up and down disobedience and yet the real suffering servant in the position to take on the sin for us has in fact done it. He has taken on your sin. He has taken on my sin. He's taken on all the sin of the world and then the good news remember that sin it leads to this wasting away this famishing of the soul this corroding of the soul the great news is that he took on sin he paid the penalty of sin he ultimately wasted away unto death but then defeated death through the resurrection this Ezekiel chapter 4 is actually that the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ Isaiah 53 gives a beautiful picture of our suffering servant Jesus Christ it says this who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him how many portrayals of Jesus are wrong based on that point alone where we make Jesus pretty and unscarred but Isaiah the prophet says there was nothing about his appearance that would attract us to him. He was despised and he was rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering. He was familiar with pain. Those of you who are going through some pain this morning, you ought to find great hope in the fact that Jesus, your rescuer, your savior, was familiar with pain. He knows what you're going through. He can identify with your situation. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem, but surely he took up our pain. He took up your pain. The pain that you're experiencing this morning, God has already nailed to the cross in Christ. He took up that pain and he bore our suffering. What are you suffering through this morning? What is it that has you, has you so down and has you so depressed and discouraged? The suffering, he bore that suffering on in, in his body, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that has brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. You want good news this morning? That it is by his wounds that you are healed. That means that the open wounds that you have in your life, the wounds that you've experienced, are healed in Christ if you'll place your faith and your trust in Him. We sang a song this morning that repeated the phrase, I trust in you, I trust in you. Why do we have to sing it more than once? Why can't we just say it once? Because the more that you say it, the more it sinks in. And if we can repeat the phrase, I trust in you, that each time we say it, it becomes more real in our lives as we worship Him. God, I trust in you. What about that one thing? God, I trust in you. What about this other thing? God, I trust in you. I trust in you. I trust in you. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each one of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The good news this morning is that you and I have a suffering servant in Christ. He has died for us, and through his wounds, we are healed. Isn't that good news? We are deserving of a siege. But as Ezekiel is, is playing this thing out with the clay and the camps and the ramps and the battering rams, there's this detail that seems really quite odd. 
Ezekiel is called to place an iron pan or an iron plate and then between the city and the siege. In other words, between Ezekiel and the city, he is to place an iron pan or an iron plate. And it said, the scripture says that this plate will be an iron wall around the city. And then that's it. And then we get all this stuff about weird diets and lying on your side and taking on sin and all of this other stuff. We've got, we've got this little detail that, that between the city and the siege is this iron wall protecting the city. And let me tell you, if we're in a this is that kind of mindset, then let me tell you the good news this morning. Between you and your spiritual death, between the siege that you deserve based on your disobedience and your up and down spiritual life is the beauty of the suffering servant, the iron plate, Jesus Christ. So that instead of receiving the just requirement of your actions and your disobedience, instead of God laying siege to you, if you will simply place your faith in the one who stands between you and the siege, then the iron plate will protect you. And you will be covered not in plunder and in, 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 in military force, but you will be covered in righteousness. The very righteousness of Christ. Come on, church. This is good news. There's a Christ who has wrapped himself in sin so that you might be wrapped in righteousness. There's Christ, the iron plate, called despised and rejected so that you might be called blameless. But I'm not blameless. You are in Christ. If you place your faith in Christ, God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of the one who lived without sin. And that has huge implications for our lives. You tempted with sin? Living in in the freedom of of Christ and and His rescue and His redemption? Tempted to go back to slavery? Point yourself back to the cross and say there's an iron plate that has called me blameless and has called me righteous. There's one who stands between the city and the siege There is an iron plate standing in the gap between the person you are and the person who you want to be. Do you understand that in that gap between the person that I want to be and the person that I am, there is Jesus Christ enabling us to be the people that God has called us to be. That stands in the gap. Man, I love that. You guys don't seem like it's all that great of news, but it's great news. At least in my life. And when I, when, I, when I realize that gap between who I want to be and who I actually am in practice, between the leader that I want to be and the, the, the sort of failures of leadership that I experience, I realize that, that in that gap stands Jesus and his Holy Spirit who lives in me that might empower me to be the person and the leader and the husband and the dad that, he's calls, me to, that he calls me to be and that he wants me to be. But there's one who stands in the gap. It's a beautiful message. There's Christ, the iron plate, who took on our sin. And the result of that sin, death and wasting away, a famine of the soul, so that we may have life. This, Ezekiel 4, 
is that. A foreshadowing of the beauty of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Now I want to close this message by listening to the words of Paul in Romans 8. Um, one, of the, one of the beauties of Bible study is you begin seeing all these things come together, that Old Testament, New Testament, everything kind of coming together. And as we realize that, that we, were it not for the iron wall, were it not for the iron plate, that we would be deserving of a siege, when we realize that, and then we read Romans 8, it brings a whole new meaning. And I want to read it to you this, this morning as we close our message. This is Paul's words in Romans 8, the first few verses. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Hold on, I thought I stood condemned. I thought I was disobedient. I thought I was deserving of a siege. But Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, the law that we could, could not, uh, we, the law that we could never attain on our own, that through our own effort we would never live up to this standard of God. But, but Paul says that, that he condemns sin in, in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. As long as we don't live according to the flesh, but we live according to the Spirit of God who lives inside of each one of you that have placed your faith in Christ. It's a beautiful message. One of the primary messages that I want to come across sort of implicitly in this series is that these apocalyptic books are not scary, are not books to be avoided, but books that reveal to us the love of God and the love of Christ. And the Greek word or the Hebrew word, the, the, the word that we translate apocalypse, in the Greek it's apocalypto or apocalypsis, actually means to reveal. And so when we come to these books, we have to ask the question, who or what is being revealed? And I believe that in this passage and in this book, what the prophets ultimately want to reveal is the love of God and the grace of God and the plan of God for your life, which is that you might be in relationship with Him through faith in Christ. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.